Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Uh, well, there's really only one place to start uh, this evening, and that is the historic events uh, that took place yesterday in Washington in the White House with the signing of what have been called the Abraham Accords, the normalization stroke peace agreements with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. Uh, that was certainly you know, really unprecedented. Uh, we haven't had a peace agreement since with an Arab country since 1994. The previous one to that was 1979 and people talked about how it took 25 years to get from one peace agreement to the next in less than 30 days uh, with the most recent two. And those of you who have been following this webinar for a number of months will know that uh, there have been times where I've been critical of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, but uh, certainly he wasn't the only one involved in these agreements, but certainly he deserves a lot of uh, accolades for it. He was centrally involved. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot going on with Iran, with President Trump, uh, and the fact that these agreements were released, organized and signed in Washington shows who was the real force behind it. But certainly, uh, if you could see Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's had a very uh, difficult, busy uh, few months uh, with a lot of negative press uh, back in Israel, a lot of challenges. You, know, you could see he, was, he enjoyed himself. Uh, it was the old Bibi, uh, the one who, you know, sort of, gave a very good rousing speech um, in the White House. You know, those of us sitting back in Israel understood immediately that it was a campaign speech more than anything else. It was about touting his achievements, claiming it. Again, you know, uh, one has to say that he does certainly uh, does deserve a lot of credit for it. Um, but uh, the prime minister's uh, returned back in Israel now and certainly his life is not gonna be made easier despite these agreements. Uh, one of his, let's say, biggest supporters in the mainstream media um, wrote an interesting article uh, tonight. Uh, one, a journalist that he's really, you know, sort of gives the Netanyahu line, frequently justifies Netanyahu's actions, basically uh, slammed what uh, is basically going to happen in Israel from Friday at two o'clock, and that is Israel is going to be the first country in the world to go into a second full lockdown. And remarkably, today we heard not just the uh, health minister, the deputy health minister, and the corona czar, as they call him, Ronnie Gamsu, who basically said that the likelihood is that we will not be able to get the numbers down, even though there's going to be a three-week uh, complete lockdown. People have to keep to their homes 500 meters from their home. They're allowed to, uh, to travel. Uh, beyond that, obviously, food, medicine, some work, uh, and various other exceptions. But on the whole, we are going down, going into a second lockdown uh, through the Jewish holiday period from uh, Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, until Sukkot, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. Uh, and the fact that everyone is saying that there is going to be 
uh, no discernible uh, results or achievements from this lockdown is got a lot of people uh, understandably riled up. Uh, and this reporter basically said it's like going into a war and saying in advance, there will be people who will die in this war, but we will not be able to actually achieve anything. We will not gain anything from this war, which is absolutely absurd. So it's, this lockdown is expected to cost uh, the economy something like 6.5 billion shekels, uh, probably a lot more uh, unemployed, a lot of mental anguish, a lot of difficulties, challenges uh, in the population already teetering from the first lockdown. Um, so this is, this, is, this is gonna be a very, very difficult time uh, for Netanyahu. Uh, interestingly, uh, the president of the State of Israel, as we know, uh, Reuben Rivlin, who holds a largely ceremonial position, but he likes to, uh, you know, he, he gives, uh, it's traditional to give a pre-Rosh Hashanah New Year speech, and he gave the kind of speech which one would perhaps arguably expect from the prime minister where he apologized on behalf of the political level and said that we could do more. We, we need to fight to gain the confidence of the people back, something we talked about last week, and we need to set an example. And he even talked about how during Pesach, during Passover, he invited his daughter uh, and I believe her, her family who do not live with them, who do not live with him, uh, to come and celebrate the Seder meal, the Passover meal with his family, which was against the rules at the time. Uh, Netanyahu was also caught doing that and various other uh, senior politicians also caught having members of the family outside and he apologized for that and he talked about how confidence in Israel's leadership is at an all-time low and they have to fight uh, to regain it. Uh, that's something that Netanyahu certainly got his uh, job cut out for. Netanyahu and the whole delegation that returned from uh, the United States now have to go into a five-day quarantine period until Monday. Uh, that was something that was hammered out uh, with the uh, health ministry and others. Uh, some people argue, again, you know, the rest of the country have to go into 14 <coughs> days of quarantine when they return from a, a red country uh, like the United States. So why do they only get out of uh, a five-day? Obviously, some would argue as prime minister, we need him to be working and available. Even though the defense minister went into a 14-day quarantine and also prime minister, Benny Gantz, uh, when he became in, uh, um, in contact with someone with coronavirus, we saw the health minister, the deputy health minister, the coronavirus, uh, I, I believe even the chief of police, all went into 14-day uh, 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 isolation as a result of coming into contact. So again, it sort of speaks to whether the right example was set. Um, but what we do see is going to be a fight on his hands, uh, Netanyahu. We saw a poll released uh, less than an hour ago not uh, massive differences, but Likud did drop another seat, now down to 30. Uh, Yamina, the party of Naftali Bennett, gained another seat to 22. So that means there's eight seats now between the two principal parties on the right wing. Uh, obviously, they're fighting largely over a similar demographic. Uh, and that means there's a four-seat swing. If Yamina is able to, in the next few months, pick up four seats, Remarkably, they could become the largest party on the larger bloc, something we've talked about previously, that is the most important thing to win the elections to become prime minister. You have to be the largest party in the larger bloc. And there are only eight seats away from it now. Uh, that's a four-seat swing, uh, because largely, not totally, but largely, Yamina's seats, uh, when it's gained, have come at the cost of Likud. Um, 
Naftali Bennett actually has been able to reach across the aisle and even take some center, center left votes uh, because people see him as a potential leader. They like what he says on the coronavirus, even if they don't necessarily like his ideology or his politics. Uh, but largely, as Lee could have gone down, Yamin have gone up. So this is a real fight uh, for Netanyahu uh, because, as we said, we are an election campaign. It's, a, it's not a matter of uh, if, it's a matter of when. And almost certainly early next year, we will see elections. Again, unless Netanyahu decides it's worth handing over the reins, uh, the prime minister's office to Benny Gantz, rather than have to do that with Naftali Bennett, something which could possibly happen, because certainly that's something that the Netanyahu's, and I say that in plural, because the wife certainly has a long-standing grudge against uh, Naftali Bennett and Ella Shaked, who worked in the prime minister's office with Netanyahu in the past. Uh, something that she would absolutely dread to see, uh, the two of them in power. So there is that possibility that a Gantz uh, prime ministership could ironically be handed uh, to him by the rise of Naftali Bennett. Um, Netanyahu's diplomatic achievements, I've said for a while, uh, will give him a little bit of a boost. There are, there are those who already like him and those who believe in what he's achieved, who will be buoyed by uh, these latest accords. But as we saw from the polls, this is literally hours after the, the major ceremony on the White House lawn, they could actually drop to seats. So there really hasn't even been that jump, that short-term jump uh, in Netanyahu's um, approval ratings, largely because we are now days away from uh, a lockdown. And even now, couple of days away from the lockdown, there's been even more zigzags, even more uh, flip-flops. You know, the, 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 uh, originally the education system was supposed to close on Wednesday, and then the education minister fought for it to be on Friday, and then there was a, another U-turn and they decided it will close tomorrow. So you can imagine a lot of people who are trying to arrange their days, especially on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, uh, around having the kids in school will now have to make other arrangements. And there seems to be lots of other exceptions which don't make sense that you can go, you have to keep to 500 meters unless you exercise, or unless you do this, unless you do that. But if you do this, you can't do that. And you know, there's all sorts of things. People say, why can religious women go to a mikvah, uh, a, a purity bath, uh, but people can't go to the sea or go into a swimming pool? Uh, they say, uh, for example, it's the, in the upcoming festival of Sukkot, you know, we build these outside tabernacles, these temporary houses outside. The shops that sell these are allowed to stay open, but clothes shops are not allowed to stay open. Uh, so there's been a lot of, you know, let's say anger, bewilderment, disappointment, uh, even confusion. I think that's really the, 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 the main uh, part of it. And, and at the end of the day, this all equals a complete lack of confidence in the government. People have said, if you're going to lock us down again, at least give the government, uh, uh, businesses, the small businesses, the ones that may not survive another lockdown, the uh, freelance workers who may not survive uh, economically, give them what they need uh, ahead of this. Um, and basically we're, we're, we're in a situation now where the whole country is being locked down because there are around, I think, 800 serious cases. And it seems remarkable that we were told the other day, the finance minister, Yisrael Katz, said that he gave, between the first and the second lockdown, 15 billion shekels. That's, uh, what, about $4 billion to the health system in only the last few months. 
and the system is going to be overwhelmed uh, with just a few hundred serious cases in the whole country. Now, a lot of people point to that and say, why are we being punished for the frailty and for the mismanagement by the government of the health system? Uh, so every day we're hearing more and more of these sort of stories, how plans are only suddenly being made now. Suddenly people are coming out and saying, maybe we can build field hospitals. Israel has a lot of experience building field hospitals during wars, uh, natural disasters around the world. Uh, why can't we do it here? There's been all these sort of plans, maybe to turn one of the closed terminals at uh, Ben Gurion International Airport into a coronavirus ward. And again, these are the things which are only coming up now when we're on the eve of the lockdown. These things, uh, people argue, uh, should have been looked at and should have been addressed in the last few months. But there's been a complete lack of preparation uh, for this lockdown. And basically, the people are wondering why they have to suffer as a result of this, especially as now we hear the leading health officials say that the next three weeks will not achieve anything and we will not be able to uh, get the numbers down significantly. We're up to around five and a half thousand new infections every day, which is a remarkable number, and it just seems to be shooting up higher and higher. Um, so it remains to be seen what the next three weeks will uh, bring, but it's certain to bring a, even more anger, a lot of confusion, and I would be surprised if Netanyahu's numbers that Naftali Bennett will be within touching distance within a month or two of, um, of the Likud party. So that could completely change uh, the political map, especially as we head into possibly a fourth elections in under two years. And with that, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions. Right. Thank you so much. The first one is, is why do you think the COVID-19 infection rate in Israel is so high and why is it getting worse? I'm sure if you knew the exact answer to that, it would all be solved, but <laughs> you could give it a stab. Well, interestingly, when, when the uh, lockdown measures were, uh, the second lockdown measures were introduced by Netanyahu uh, earlier in the week, he came out very uh, aggressively uh, he didn't uh, give an inch, he didn't uh, accept any responsibility. And his claim was simple, that uh, Israel was the first nation, or one of the first nations to go into full lockdown. It went into lockdown very early, um, and it was a pretty severe lockdown. This one won't be as severe. And they also left relatively early, he claims, as a result to, to, to save the economy. Um, critics argued that there was no plan uh, after the lockdown finished and everything opened up far too quickly. Schools were pretty much back in session within days of the end of lockdown. Shops were open, restaurants were open. Everything was pretty much open within a few weeks. Um, so the, the numbers went up. There's a lot of other factors. There's been a lot of uh, you know, sort of debates of why Israel. And I, th I think there's one that's maybe, maybe got an element of truth to it. In Israel, we've been used to terrorist attacks to wars, to sitting under you know, rocket attacks, if anyone remembers the first Gulf War with the Scud attacks, night after night after night. And Israelis were told and developed an attitude, no matter what they throw at us, we will continue living our life. Nothing will stop it. So we developed this attitude. Israelis developed an attitude that no matter what the situation, however dire people say it is, it's our job to go and live our lives. I mean, if you've ever seen a terrorist attack in Israel, uh, it can be at a major thoroughfare and a major population center. It could be even dozens uh, of people dead. And the next day, you wouldn't even know there was an attack there. 
the, the, the road will be opened up again, everything will be cleared away, and shops will be open. That's the reality, that's the life that Israelis have had to get on with. Uh, so perhaps that mentality is now counting against us. Uh, a lot of people say that, you know, we've talked in the past that two major populations uh, that haven't adhered uh, as well, as, or at least numbers-wise, are the Arab and the ultra-Orthodox. But certainly if you go to other areas of the country, you won't see, let's just say, a full uh, adherence to the rules of wearing masks, social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been a lot of complaints uh, Netanyahu has been very strong about blaming the public. Um, as I said, others will blame the government, but there's probably a lot of different factors in there. There's, there's part of it is the government had no policy, uh, had no real uh, you know, sort of strategy of how to end the lockdown. Uh, there is certainly you know, in the population, when the first lockdown was over, I think there were less than 100 people who were dead. And I spoke to people in the US and the UK, and everyone knew people who had died. You know, we're talking about tens of thousands in the UK, hundreds of thousands in the US. So everyone knew people, everyone, not everyone, but many people knew people who died, people who got very seriously ill uh, from this. In Israel, very, very few people actually knew anyone who had died, who'd become seriously ill. So it, it wasn't a reality. It, you know, it, it's, you know the, the idea that this is a deadly, dangerous disease just wasn't anyone's reality in Israel, very few people's, as opposed to many other countries which really did suffer. So I think a combination of these uh, points at least into that direction. So along the lines of the mortality rate, uh, so the infections are up, but has the mortality rate also been rising? Um, not, not as much. Um, the numbers, I believe, are you know, over 1,100 deaths. And again, if you compare the, the, the rate of fatalities to other countries, Israel comes out very well. Um, perhaps because Israel has a, a younger population to many other nations in Western Europe and the US uh, and, and, other, and other countries. Uh, if you look at the numbers, even in, in places in sub-Saharan Africa, where the average age is much younger and the life expectancy is uh, lower, I guess that's not the case in Israel because we have a pretty high life expectancy, but when you have a lower, younger population, it does seem that there's some correlation between that. Um, but yes, definitely the, the number of people who uh, have died from this, the number of people who are in very serious situation, the number of people who are on uh, ventilators is pretty low, um, but we're being told, again, there seems to be a debate in the health system some heads of hospitals say our system isn't being overwhelmed. We're quite away, away from that. Others say we're 100% capacity and any more than that. And they'll have to start uh, turning away uh, potential patients. So there seems to be also disagreement even at that level. Uh, but definitely the numbers uh, are not as high as the number of infections would suggest. So you mentioned the economic uh, cost of the second lockdown. Is there a projected amount for that? Like who? Yeah, as I said, it's been projected uh, to be about 6.5 billion shekels, which uh, is a bit under $2 billion. Uh, that's for three weeks. By the way, no one said after three weeks whether we'll be out uh, of this lockdown. Uh, everything will depend on the numbers and even then, uh, we've been told we're going to move to phase two, which will ease the restrictions a little bit, but not significantly. You'll then be able to travel just within your community, within your own city or town, not necessarily intercity uh, travel. 
there will still be significant restrictions on people's movements and interactions uh, and gathering numbers. Uh, but if after three, uh, three weeks the numbers haven't gone down significantly, then it could be the lockdown will continue even further. Oh, that's a lot. Um, so let's move on to the peace agreement. That was a very exciting monument in history there. Uh, how do the Israeli people view this right now? I think on the whole positively. Um, as I said, you know, there's a lot going on in Israel. Uh, so I think the average Israeli's attention span was probably the total length of this ceremony. Uh, many people watched the ceremony, watched it with pride, watched it with hope. Uh, we're, we're very pleased to see two uh, Arab countries uh, making peace, not just a, a peace like we have with Jordan and Egypt, which is a peace amongst leaders and one could argue a relatively cold peace. This seems to be different. This seems to be uh, a warmer peace, something which is really, uh, you know, the fact that uh, they're willing to speak about it so openly and there's been lots and lots of uh, connections made between Emiratis and Israelis and Bahrainis. Uh, and Israelis, um, and there's, there's a real sense that this is not going to be just a sort of peace on paper. This is going to be, there's going to be real engagement between uh, the two countries and the two peoples on many levels, and even that started on, on certain economic projects and even on COVID itself, uh, cooperation on COVID itself. Um, but as soon as the ceremony was over, the next day came and the the announcement that uh, school would have to finish a day earlier than we were promised and the restrictions would be changed, there'd be another zigzag. I think the, the sort of goodwill that emanated from that ceremony is, is evaporating relatively quickly. Thank you. Are the F-35s of the UAE still on the table and does Bahrain want them as well? Well, you know, uh, uh, President Trump addressed that during a press conference where he said he sees, I, I can't remember his exact wording and paraphrasing, but he sees no reason not to give them. Basically, when Prime Minister Netanyahu says that the F-35s are not part of the Israel-Emirati agreement, he's being completely honest there. It's not part of the agreement, but it's clear that they were part of the agreement with the US. And in essence, as I said we, you know, earlier, that the fact that this was announced in the US, this was signed, sealed, and delivered by the US shows who was running the show. Uh, and it was the US and it was President Trump and the administration. Uh, so it's clear that they came to the table uh, promised with a promise of certain things. Uh, and it seems that F-35s were one of that. I haven't seen anything about Bahrainis making a similar claim. Um, but it's, I think I wouldn't be surprised if they, they get some sort of goodies out of uh, uh, the American administration as a result of this. Do you care to comment on the rockets fired into Israel and the Israeli response and how would this affect future relations with Arab countries? Well, I, th I think it was, it was not unexpected that Hamas would want to have their word. Um, it was interesting, you know, if, if you would have asked me before, I, would have, I said, yeah, they probably would send some to Sterot, which is a, a nearby relatively small town and the environs near Gaza. But the fact that they uh, shot their rockets into Ashdod and Ashkelon, uh, which are further up the coast and these are major cities, uh, shows that they wanted to send quite a message. And there's already, there's at least one person who's in a serious condition as a result of the rockets, because <clears throat> at least one landed in a major population 
area. Um, but again, it's, it's, there's, you know, what, I think it really just uh, shows that there are now two camps in the Middle East. It's no longer the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's the pragmatist, the moderate uh, uh, wing, which is Israel and the pragmatic Sunni Arab nations. And then you have the rejectionist side, which is led by Iran, with many of its proxies, whether Hezbollah, uh, Hamas, uh, and others in Syria. And I think this just puts into contrast, and I think that more Sunni nations, I mean, they, they've understood this for quite a while. Uh, and the fact that, you know, people can talk so openly about Saudi Arabia uh, and some of the other countries potentially joining, uh, President Trump went from five or six countries potentially joining the next few months. So I think he mentioned seven or eight or nine. Uh, I'm not sure where these seven, eight or nine countries are going to come from, but, uh, but the fact that he can talk so openly about, he sees that Saudi Arabia could, could happen. Um, I think it's, it's a remarkable uh, testament to what we, we see. And I don't think, I think the more Hamas, Hezbollah and Iran is behind these type of attacks, I think it actually drives Israel and the Sunni nations closer together. <clears throat> well, ever the optimist, we have the question in as, what are the options to bring the Palestinians into negotiations? Um, I mean, there's very little. Uh, you know, President Trump put on the table through his peace to prosperity plan, billions and billions of dollars in aid, a real boost for the economy, really bringing it uh, to where, you know, to, to, to a level largely unheard of in this neighborhood, uh, really helping the Palestinians with their institution building, really doing a lot. And they still won't come to the table. So I don't think there's much that can bring uh, the Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas specifically to the table because he has no interest. Uh, people have debated whether he is willing or even able to come to the table. But the fact is, all he's doing is pronouncing days of rage. Uh, there's a sort of joke uh, here in Israel, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't have these big proclamations of days of rage. Just tell us which days are not days of rage and, and it'll be much easier to deal with. Uh, so they've had their day of rage. They had their demonstrations. Uh, they even, there's even been calls for third intifada. And there have been some attacks recently. Um, but as far as coming to the table, it doesn't seem that's uh, going to happen anytime soon. So while we're speaking of the Palestinians, what is uh, the COVID situation there? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, they don't have the facilities of a place like Israel and many other Western countries. So when they get a few cases, they, they went to lockdown a few months ago. Um, I haven't been following their figures recently, but I don't think they're, they're especially high, but, uh, but I know Gaza started having its first cases and this is what panicked Hamas into uh, asking Israel for aid and led to a ceasefire until obviously they launched these rockets uh, last night. Um, but uh, I haven't seen the exact number, so I can't really talk to them, but uh, there is a worry and every now and again, uh, they shut down the villages and the towns in, under the control of the Palestinian Authority. But, uh, they're not uh, at the level of Israel yet. Understood, thank you. Where will the UAE and Bahrain place their embassies? Not in Jerusalem. <laughs> I don't see that happening. Uh, they'll be in Tel Aviv or somewhere in the central re uh, region. It remains to be seen when this will happen, but it does, uh, the, the agreements do call for this as soon as possible, but uh, I don't see them uh, coming to Jerusalem anytime soon. 
but you never know. I think if you'd have asked anyone a few months ago, if this would have happened, they would have probably said no. So, but uh, I wouldn't put too much money on them uh, moving their embassies to Jerusalem at this point. Thank you. And do you think this is mostly Jared Kushner's thrust or Trump's? That's a good question. I mean, first of all, it goes to the question of who should take credit for achievements like this. You know, there's obviously on both sides, on the American side, on the Israeli side, let alone the UAE and Bahrain side. You know, we, we, we see the principles. We, see, we saw President Trump, we saw uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and the two foreign ministers, and those were the sort of the, the main actors at the big event, you know, the one that caught the international attention. But, you know, people, people say to me, oh, this was, this was just all Netanyahu's work. And I say, you know, someone who worked in the foreign ministry, I was in the foreign ministry and worked with people who you know, worked unofficially in the UAE for many years and, and other Gulf nations. Uh, I, I've been in offices with senior Israeli officials who have taken calls from not just UAE officials, but other officials, uh, very senior officials of very large uh, Arab nations. So this has been many, many years uh, in the making. Uh, you know, that we've got to give credit to the diplomats of the foreign ministry. Uh, you know, they've been working on this for many, many years, to, uh, regardless of who's prime minister, regardless of who's foreign minister. Um, they say Yossi Cohen of the Mossad was in, uh, centrally involved. So he was another player. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the elected leader who has to sign off on these things. Uh, and it's, it's a no-brainer for both of them. First of all, with elections for both of them coming up, but also because it... It's, it's, as I said, it's a no-brainer to, to create peace, to create formal relations in an area which knows very little of this. And one can argue that this, you know, this week has ended probably, you know, what has been known as the Israeli-Arab conflict. The fact that two, ma you know, major uh, nations in the Gulf uh, with others shortly to come, the fact that Saudi Arabia are allowing Israel to fly over, direct flights to Morocco. I mean, you know, we, we, we haven't seen these moves uh, before. So I think we're certainly seeing the end of the Israeli-Arab conflict. And I think if you look at all the attempts since Oslo in 1993 to try and get uh, an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians, it was, it was based on what was called in the international community linkage. The idea was that first you solve the Israeli-Palestinian uh, Israeli conflict, and then all the other Arab nations will come to the table and there'll be peace in the Middle East. That failed. That was a failed proposition because it overloaded Israeli-Palestinian conflict and gave Ramallah, Abu Mazen, Yasser Arafat a veto over relations in the wider region. Now we have the outward in policy or strategy, which is first you make uh, relations with the Arab world and then that puts pressure on the Palestinians because there are very few cards left and it puts pressure on them. And I think, you know, the Palestinians are not running to the table, as I said, but the more and more Arab nations who create, who form uh, relations with Israel basically gives the Palestinians almost nowhere to go, except hopefully at some point uh, to the table. So we're seeing more success in the last few months than we have in decades of uh, peace uh, process uh, since Oslo, I would argue. So it's really paradigm changing events this week. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about many, many more in the weeks and months ahead. Well, we certainly hope so. An excellent point to end on. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Ashley, for speaking with us today.
Thank you. And for our viewers, as a reminder, we will not be having a webinar this Friday, but thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day. And Ashley, good luck going into lockdown again. Thank you. <laughs> have a good one all.